0: Will you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. May be seated. Well, good morning, St. Anselms. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Now, since I'm just a visitor here this morning, I'm not sure how many of you happen to be apologetics nerds like myself, uh, but I'm going to venture on a limb and say that some of you may be like me in this regard. Um, You love listening to non-believers talk about their worldviews, and probably also trying to understand where those worldviews break down so that you can find a way in to share the love of Jesus Christ with skeptics. Now if you find yourself engaging in this kind of evangelism, or if you're just a sensitive soul with a tender conscience, then I would say that you probably, and I would even say hopefully, have had some kind of encounter with what we refer to as the problem of evil. And I say this confidently because this happens to be one of the perennial issues in Christian apologetics take a sample of non-believers from the general population and you'll probably find that close to half, if not more, are going to cite some form of the problem of evil for why they simply can't believe that Christianity is true. For some reason, this problem seems to be a seriously persuasive argument against God and our culture. Even if it's not totally true, it is very persuasive for many. But the reason for this is that Christianity makes very particular claims about who God is. We say that he is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and that in fact he is goodness itself. So the question in this case then is how evil could exist in this world if it was truly created by a good God? God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all good, and furthermore, if he created everything, then where does evil come from? Why doesn't God stop it? Does God actually know what is happening to us? The things we're experiencing, the hardships we face? It's not hard to imagine how such questions can quickly overwhelm the non-Christian, and if most of us are honest, probably overwhelms us too, at times. We may need an apologetic here for Christians and non-Christians alike. But thanks be to God that Scripture doesn't back away from this difficult problem. I think sometimes we have the tendency to expect that people, you know, back in Bible times didn't deal with the same kinds of issues we did, but they they do. They do, and I think our our passage uh, from the Gospels this morning makes that clear. Because I think that our Gospel passage uh, this morning actually deals directly uh, pretty directly with this issue of evil in the church because in this parable we learn about the, the goodness and justice of our God we learn about the end, the end of history and the patience and long-suffering that he shows in order that his children might not be destroyed alongside evil when the end of that history comes so in order to get there In order to understand how we grapple with this problem as 21st century Christians, we need to ask a few questions, serious questions. Where did this evil come from? What is God's response to this evil? And finally, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in an unrighteous world? So first we'll look to discern evil's origins. And as we look back, of course, we're taken back to Genesis 3. We're introduced to the serpent, the tempter, who tries and succeeds in deceiving God's good creatures, Adam and Eve, into eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree from which they were forbidden to eat by God. Now this originating sin is what Paul in Romans 6 would have us know was the deposit of death and sin in in God's good creation. But let's be attentive to the nature of their sin. The sin was not forced on them. They weren't coerced. They were tricked, but not coerced. And in fact, they weren't even really pressured into doing what they did, into making the decision that that they made. The point here is that Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. Yes, they were tempted. Yes, they were deceived. But they chose their disobedience. They let temptation breed disobedience to God. And in this moment of disobedience, the whole course of human history was changed. Their human choice, and particularly the human choice to not listen to God, to listen to ourselves, to be our own authorities, to set ourselves up as God, evil came into the world. And that evil began to detract from, to demean, and to destroy the goodness of God's creation. And there's a principle here. If any of you are familiar with St. Augustine, he talks about this. Evil is a, a privation of the good. It's parasitic on what is good in this world. God creates the world good, and evil seeks to destroy it. And so the important thing to note here is that evil comes about as a response to God's command, namely the wrong response to God's command. Evil and sin and death become a fixture of, in the world as a result of the free choice of human beings to diminish the goodness of God's creation through disobedience to his word. In other words, Evil is not a thing that God created. Hear that this morning. Evil is not a thing that God created. And in order to understand our parable of the weeds and the wheat this morning, we have to wrestle with this reality. We have to grasp the weight of its implications. Because again, I'm sure all of us have heard people in the throes of frustration with the consequences of evil in this world. Or perhaps we've even been that person who at times is tempted to shake our fists at God and say, how could you do this, God? How could this happen? Or like the people in our parable this morning. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? God, aren't you all good? Where is all of this evil and suffering coming from, and why am I the one to deal with it? Well, what's God's answer? What does he say in our parable? He says, an enemy has done this. In other words, an evil thing has been done, and this is not of me. This is a work of the enemy. This is the work of that same serpent that has sought to tempt us unto sin from the very day evil began to ravage God's good creation. So be assured of this, friends. The evil we experience The disorder we see in the world, the evil that ravages and which makes ruin of our lives and of the lives of those around us, this evil is not from God. Because he is truly all-knowing, all-loving, and all-good. In fact, he is knowledge and love and goodness itself. There is no evil in him. And it's because of this character of God that we know that he sees our affliction He sees the weeds growing in his kingdom Growing alongside the wheat that he planted And he knows that this is not the way that his creation was intended to be He knows So if the origin of evil is not God Then perhaps some of us are asking ourselves, what is he doing about it then? If he didn't create it, then why doesn't he stop it? Now those of us well acquainted with the senseless death and injury and hurt that evil can bring are probably, uh, can probably testify that on our worst days it feels like these weeds are choking us out. It's difficult to breathe in the air of God's goodness when it's mixed with air that is bitter with the stench of evil. Theft, deception. Lies, slander, betrayal, murder, contempt. God, what do you say to us this morning who deal with all of these realities? Well, friends, I think that Jesus' words before us seem to be his very answer or part of his answer to this problem. And as is often the case with his parables, uh, the answer is not on the surface. The truth is there for those who are hungry to feast upon it. But in Jesus' parables, uh, this truth is not usually what we would call low-hanging fruit. So let's apply our hearts closely to the mystery of the soil and the wheat and the weeds. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is to be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And now we get some help in the second half of our reading because Jesus himself explains the parable. So we have to ask ourselves, as Jesus explains, who is the sower? Who is the good seed, and what is the field? Now, of course, he says that the sower is Jesus himself. It's God. The good good seed are the sons of the kingdom. It's his church, it's his body, it's us gathered here this morning. And then what is the field? Well, the field is the world. It's the soil in which God has planted his church. But we also see that there is an enemy, the sower, the sower of bad seed, the ekthros in the Greek, that one with a deep seated hatred of God, a deep seated enmity, and an adversarial spirit. This enemy comes along and sows bad seed. He sows weeds, which are the sons of the enemy, alongside the sons of his kingdom. Now being an agricultural society, uh, Jesus' hearers would have understood well what he was speaking of. Now it it was reported at times and there were actually ancient laws uh, that show us that as a form of revenge, farmers would sow these weeds among their enemies' crops. These weeds were almost indistinguishable from the wheat that they were being thrown alongside. And what's more, these weeds end up being toxic to the wheat. The root systems sort of intertwine and they start to uh, steal nutrients from the surrounding soil that the wheat, the good, the good seed, needs to grow. And because they're so tied together, you can't root up these weeds uh, without pulling out the good wheat as well. You'll ruin the harvest. So the hearers of Jesus' time would have, understand, would have understood what he was trying to say. If at this moment in time, we, the good seed, God's church, if we at this moment in time as God's agents in this world attempt to root out all of the evil that we see around us completely and totally there's a very good chance that we will dig up too much we will play right into the enemy's schemes we may destroy the devil's work by rooting out the weed but we will be agents alongside him in undoing the work of God's good creation, we will pull up the wheat as well. Now, this isn't to say that as a church we don't stand against evil and sin. Certainly we do. This isn't a defeatist message where we simply give in to evil's destructive powers. However, we're simply called to recognize that it has not been given to us to be evil's final judge. The kingdom of God, thus constituted of us wheat, is not ours to bring down to this earth. Jesus expects here that this evil is something alongside which the sons of the kingdom will coexist until the end of the age. That's the wisdom of our parable. Again, Jesus expects that this evil is going to be with us until the end of the age. We're not equipped to root it out of the world completely. If that were the case, then he wouldn't have given us this wisdom. As holy as she is, Christ's church is not the world's judge, jury, and executioner. In this wicked world, we evangelize, we persuade, we teach, we preach, we exhort, but we do not condemn. Instead, with Paul and our reading from Romans this morning, we groan inwardly for the sons of God to be revealed. We wait for the end of the age, for the harvest where God's angels will do the reaping and where God himself will be the judge. He is the one who sees the evil of the world for what it is. And he is the one who will be able to delicately separate the wheat from the weeds at the right time. To know that which is of his good seed and that which is of the enemy. And on that day, evil will be entirely, roundly, and utterly destroyed. And God will affect this work. And to the degree that he's given it to us, we participate in this work as the church. But until then, we grow together, and we grow together patiently, patiently awaiting Christ's return. And finally, we do this because this is truly the key to living as members of Christ's church in a world so acquainted with evil. Christ assures us that evil will endure, and it will endure until as long as humans are free agents in this world. But if we pay attention to the end of our parable, Christ assures us that the righteous judgment that evil and sin deserve will come. Verse 41, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Now as frightening as that probably sounds, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this is actually the Church's hope. This is the Church's hope. Not that we would solve the problem of evil ourselves, not that we would submit to it, and certainly not that we would be destroyed by it, but that at the end of history we can trust that God will be a righteous judge on our behalf, who will bring an end to sin and evil's dark shadow over our lives by destroying it totally and utterly in the end of the age. I I love Samwise Gamgee's line at the end of the Return of the King uh, from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. After the ring had been destroyed in Mount Doom, uh, Sam awakes to see Gandalf and he asks a curious and, um, but ultimately incisive question, uh, which I think is relevant this morning. He asks Gandalf, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Friends, we have hope in Jesus Christ that the answer to this question is a definitive yes. At the end of history... Not only will God's goodness shine brilliantly through the dark haze of evil's cloudy rain, but the clouds which have obstructed our view will dissipate in his light. And the sons of his kingdom, his righteous ones, as he says, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Only this cosmic of a hope could steal our hearts with, patient endurance, with with the patient endurance we need to live as members of Christ's church. And thanks be to God that this is our hope this morning in Christ Jesus. But hopeful as it is, we should be given pause as well, lest we count ourselves too quickly among God's righteous. Because it's easy to have hope that God will destroy all of the evil that's out there, everything that everybody else is doing, But it's yet another thing to recognize that we ourselves have sinned and even become causes of sin and lawbreakers. The famous Soviet dissident and Russian Orthodox author Alexander Solzhenitsyn insightfully points out in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, that the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of each and every one of us. There is none righteous, no, not one, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friends, none of us are clean. None of us have avoided the stain of evil in this world. And none of us have avoided a shadow in our own hearts. But just as Christ's hope meets us in the world, Christ's deliverance reaches even down into our hearts to cleanse us from sin's evil reign. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we wait with eager longing for that last day, for that day of judgment, not because we possess a righteousness of our own, not because we believe that we will be found righteous before him on our own strength, but but because we possess the very righteousness of Christ himself. And by that righteousness, we will be vindicated on the last day. And it's through that righteousness through which we will be separated not as weeds from the field to be burned but as good wheat sown in righteousness by Jesus Christ and harvested at the end of the age by our Heavenly Father to become luminous in His presence. So our hope is not just for cosmic healing but that Christ would begin to heal us all even now here this morning. So to close, friends, This is a needed word of hope because, as we're all well aware, the enemy is at work in our world. He's at work in our country, he's at work in our cities, he's at work in our families, and our friends, and even in our own hearts. He roars around like a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour, coming to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I don't think any of us need to look very far to confirm this fact and I'll bet some of us have even come in here this morning feeling the weight of that burden but friends hold this hope near to your heart this morning Christ's promise to you is that this evil this pain and this burden will be made right whether it's this side of eternity or the other Christ's reign will come and make all sad things come untrue and he will restore the goodness of this world to its intended state. Until then, although we may not understand why he waits, let this hope breed in you patience. The patience to endure, as Paul keenly states, the race set before you. And it is a race, and it will require endurance because we know that it will include groaning, in sorrow, in pain. This is truly the state of the world in which we live, in which God has planted us as good seed. But friends, we can endure with patience the wiles of the enemy. We can endure with patience the underhanded trickery of the devil's attempts to convince us to stop running. Because we have hope. We have hope that we will one day stand before our Lord as the liturgy says we shall see him face to face and we shall shine like the sun in his presence in the presence of the father at the end of history that is our hope hold firm to it this morning stand fast and take heart in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen